The New Testament reading for today is Luke 16, 19 through 31. The sermon text is Psalm 49. Luke 16, 19 through 31, and Psalm 49. Let's go now to Luke 16, verse 19. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. These are the words of Christ. He's telling us the story in order to teach us something. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and no one may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let us go now to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. The title of this psalm, is to the choir master a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep... They are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me 
Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The title of Psalm 49 is, To the Choir Master, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were just that. They were the descendants of a man named Korah. And you can read about him in Numbers 16. It's really not a happy story. Korah was the Levite who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and the Lord judged him. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his household. But Numbers 26.11 clarifies that the sons of Korah did not die. That is what the text says. By the grace of God, some of Korah's descendants survived, and they became temple doorkeepers and guardians. That is what 1 Chronicles 9.17 and following says. Whereas others became singers, singers and musicians in the temple choir, which was founded in the days of David. You can see 1 Chronicles 6.31 and following to learn about that. So, it is possible that this psalm was written in the days of David, but it is also possible that it was written later by the further descendants of the sons of Korah who ministered musically in the temple. Notice that Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. This psalm, like Psalm 1 and many others, is not addressed to God as psalms of thanksgiving and praise are, but it is instead addressed to man. Look with me at verses 1-4. through Hear this, all peoples, the text says. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So, Psalm 49 is like a proverb or a wise saying, but put to song. On a bit of a side note here, I might ask you this. What does this say about our singing, brothers and sisters? Singing in church, of course, is what I mean. We are to sing the Psalms. Yes, we are even to sing Psalms like Psalm 49. And when we write our own hymns and spiritual songs, we may also write songs of wisdom that are addressed not to God, but to one another. And in fact, Ephesians 5.19 commands this, saying that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. So, it is true, all of our singing is to be ultimately directed to the Lord, but we are also to address one another when we sing. We are to remind one another through our singing of God's truth and God's faithfulness as we offer up praise to God together through song. But one might ask, how do songs of wisdom, like this one here in Psalm 49, which are addressed to man and not to God, how do they give glory and praise to God? I think you know that all of our singing should give glory and praise to God. Of course that is true. And how do songs of wisdom give glory to God, being that they are not addressed to Him? 
Well, these psalms of wisdom do give glory to God, even though they are addressed to man. For they give glory to God when His truth is expressed. They express God's truth, and thus God is glorified. They give glory to God, for they do implore men and women to run to God for truth and for deliverance. We will see this in verse 15 in just a moment. And of course, God is glorified when we do that. And they give glory to God when they move men and women to live according to God's truth. That is their aim, and certainly God is glorified when His people trust and obey Him. So though Psalm 49 is addressed to men, it is God who gets the glory, for it is God and His truth that are here exalted. Verses 1-4 through of this psalm function as an introduction to the psalm. Here we see that the psalm is addressed to all peoples. All the inhabitants of the world are called upon to listen. In particular, the sons of Korah call upon those who are low and high, rich and poor, to listen. As we consider this psalm, it will become clear as to why he addresses these two groups specifically. For this psalm does provide special instruction for the powerful and for the weak. It provides special instruction for those who are rich and for those who are poor. And lastly, by way of introduction, the psalm is said to be a wise saying, which is the product of the psalmist's meditation upon a proverb and his contemplation of a riddle or a difficult question. So what is the question on the psalmist's mind? What is the riddle that he is here contemplating with us? Well, it is actually stated in verses 5 and 6. Here is the question. Here is the riddle. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? That's a very good question. I think this riddle has plagued the people of God from generation to generation ever since man's fall into sin. And I think you would agree it is certainly a question for our day as well. Why should I fear in times of trouble, the psalmist asks. So this wisdom song is about fear. Why should I fear is the question at hand. Or to put it another way, should I fear? Is there any good reason for me to be afraid? And while it is true that this psalm will help with all kinds of fear, no matter the, the source, the question is rather precise. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Other English translations say, in days of evil, or in days of adversity, or when evil days come. So this is not a psalm about fear in the face of some natural disaster or sickness or some other amoral tribulation, but rather fear of the trouble that evil people are causing. That is the riddle. That is the question at hand. Why should I fear when evil people who have great power and wealth rise up to, to oppress me? Look again at verses 5 through 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So the fear that the psalmist speaks to is the fear of man. It is the fear that those who are weak and vulnerable in this world feel 
when those who are rich and powerful come against them to oppress them. As I said before, this is a perennial problem for the people of God. Sometimes the weak and the poor are oppressed by the rich and the powerful in this world. This happens all around the world. It happens in every time and in every place. And sometimes it happens to God's people. We are to remember that it happened to Christ Himself. It happened to His apostles. In fact, it has happened to the people of faith from the days of Adam on to this present day. And really, we must admit that this is a terrifying experience. To be weak and to be poor and to be vulnerable. To have someone who is wealthy and strong and powerful rise up to oppress you, to take advantage of you. It must be a very terrifying experience. If you have not experienced it directly and personally, then you must use your imagination. And when you do, you will admit that it must be a very fearful experience to have those who are powerful seek to oppress you, especially if you are weak. Last Saturday was the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms, where Martin Luther refused to recant of his writings before the religious and political authorities of his day. I wonder if you know about that historical event. He stood bold, he stood confident, and he famously concluded his speech where he refused to recant by saying, Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Amen. Can you imagine the pressure that he felt? Can you imagine the temptation to give in to fear? He stood before some very, very powerful figures, powerful figures in the church and in the state who were very eager to have him recant. And he knew what had happened to others who refused to bow to the pressure of powerful and wealthy figures such as these. He knew very well what happened to them. They burned. Whenever I hear that story of Martin Luther, I wonder, where did Luther get his strength? Where did his courage come from? What was the source of it? We know that Luther escaped that trial, but many others in the history of the church did not. Perhaps you should read sometime Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a history of some who have died for their faith from the days of the Apostles onward. And and the book is not for the faint of heart, I will warn you. But it is helpful to consider the martyrs who have gone before us and to ask, where did they get the strength? Where did they find the courage to not give in to fear in the days of adversity as the powerful moved against them to oppress them? Of course, we may ask the same question of Jesus Himself. Where did He get the courage? How was it that He was able to drink the cup of suffering that the Father had called Him to drink? And yes, we must remember that Jesus was fully human. He experienced all the emotions that we experience. He was not immune from from all of that. He felt that emotion of fear. Where did Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Get the courage to stand firm and true in the face of persecution and death at the hands of those with great earthly power. These are all famous examples of men and women who have suffered persecution and even martyrdom at the hands of powerful and wicked men. But we must not forget that many, many more of God's people have suffered at the hands of powerful persecutors whose names we do not know. And many are suffering throughout the world today, being oppressed by powerful governments, organizations, and individuals. Where do they get the courage? Where do they find the strength to overcome the fear and to stand firm and resolute in Christ Jesus? 
I think it is clear that they possess some deeply held conviction which moves them to bear up under the suffering and to not abandon their hope in God and in Christ. They have decided that it is better to suffer in this world for Christ's sake than to deny Him. And I am asking, what is that conviction? What is it that gives them the strength to suffer in the name of Jesus? What do they believe which enables them to stand in the face of such fear? And then we must ask, do we have it? Do we have that same conviction, that same confidence? Do we have the same courage as they have? This wisdom psalm, Psalm 49, does not say everything that may be said, but it does help us to contemplate this age-old question, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. This is truly a marvelous psalm, brothers and sisters. It is, in fact, a little difficult to know how to divide the remainder of this passage. Commentators differ in their divisions of it. And I will admit that the commentaries I read do not divide it in the way that I have. But whatever structure we see in this psalm, the meaning will be the same at the end. I have decided to take my cues for the division of this text from the two Selahs found after verses 13 and 15. I wonder if you see them there. Most commentators agree that the term Selah was used to signal a musical interlude, perhaps to encourage the worshiper to pause and reflect on what was just said. I don't think they always signal the divisions in the text, but I think in this case they probably do. For when we divide the text according to these say laws after verses 13 and 15, we do find that these sections have themes to them. After the introduction of verses 1 through 4 and the question that we have read in verses 5 through 6, we find a contemplation of the grave in verses 7 through 13. And then a contemplation of Sheol in verses 14 and 15, followed by a beautiful resolution to the question in verses 16 through 20. And so I have outlined the psalm in this way. We have the introduction in verses 1 through 4. We have the question, the riddle, in verses 5 through 6. We have a contemplation of the grave in verses 17 through 13. A contemplation of Sheol in verses 14 and 15. And then finally a resolution of the question that was asked in verses 16 through 20. The question has been stated. In summary, it is this. Why should I fear the wealthy and powerful when they seek to oppress me? Why should I fear the wealthy and powerful when they seek to oppress me? And the first thing that the sons of Korah wish for us to contemplate as we begin to think about this riddle, is the grave. They want us to contemplate the grave. They call upon the peoples of the earth, both rich and poor, strong and weak, to come along and to think about oppression in light of the grave. In verse 7, we read, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must, must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. 
though they called lambs by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. I think this is very profound. Should the poor and the weak fear the rich and the strong when they come against them to oppress them? The psalmist says, let us begin by considering the pit or the grave. And when we do, it becomes apparent that the rich and powerful oppressors, they have their hope and confidence misplaced, for they too will go down into the pit. No amount of power or wealth will save them from that. And when they go down into the grave, they will take nothing at all with them. In other words, the psalmist wishes for us to see that death, the grave, is truly the great equalizer. The bodies of both the rich and poor will return to the dust of the earth from which we all came. I think this is a very helpful observation. And it may help to put yourself in the place of the persecuted and to see the world through their eyes to understand why this is a helpful observation. I wonder if you can imagine it. Imagine yourself very weak and vulnerable and imagine someone powerful like a king or a governor coming against you to threaten you even to the point of death. You see him there in all of his wealth and splendor. He dwells in his palace. He dwells in the security of his fortress. He has armies at his disposal. He could crush you in a moment if he so desired. And I think it is helpful to remember that he is just a man like you. His body will one day go down into the grave just like everyone else's body. Yes, it is true, his tomb may be more elaborate than yours, but his body will decay just the same. Now, this observation is not comforting all by itself. More will be said in the psalm. But it is an important observation, for what it does is it, it puts things in their proper perspective. The wealthy and powerful oppressors are mere men. In fact, they are men with their hopes terribly misplaced. They trust in their power and wealth, but these things will utterly fail them in the end. This theme of misplaced trust was actually introduced to us in the question of verses 4 through 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So, so we are not talking about wealthy and powerful people who have their trust placed in the Lord. There are wealthy and powerful people who have their, tri- uh, their trust placed in the Lord. No, we are talking about the, the wealthy and powerful people who have their trust placed in their wealth. And in fact, they are eager to persecute those who are weak. They trust in their power and wealth, but when we consider the grave, we see that their trust is terribly misplaced. And this is a very important truth for the oppressed to consider. And it is also an important truth for the, imp- the oppressor to consider. I think we should remember that the psalmist called upon both the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, to hear his words. And so the oppressor and the oppressed are both to consider the grave. The strong, the powerful, the wealthy, 
they are mere men. And it is important for all to realize this and to know that one day their body will go into the grave like all the rest. In verse 7 we find this observation. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. In other words, though the rich may oppress the poor, perhaps by demanding a ransom for their life, the rich, no matter how rich they are, will never be able to pay a ransom to God to escape the curse of death. Truly, this observation does put everything into proper perspective. I would like for you to think of the ultra-wealthy who live in the world today. Some are worth millions and even billions of dollars. Their power is very great, and yet there is no sum of money in all the world that they can pay to escape the curse of death. They may try, but they will surely fail, for the wages of sin is what? Death. That is the price that must be paid. No sum of money will do. Verse 10, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. As I have said, death is the great equalizer. One cannot take his wealth with him, though he may try. And the psalmist says that even the oppressor can see this if he would but open his eyes to this obvious reality. Verse 11, Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. So there is great irony here. Even the powerful ones who live in lavish homes and have called lands by their name, who have had lands named after them, in the end they will occupy the same amount of real estate as all the rest. Their bodies will go into the grave. Verse 12, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Pomp here means splendor. Even those with splendid power and wealth will not live forever. Like the beasts of the earth, their bodies will also perish and decay. Verse 13, This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts, say law. The word path is important. It refers to a way of life. This is the way of life of those who have foolish confidence. This word path is found throughout the book of Proverbs where the way of wisdom is consistently contrasted with the way of folly. And this word path is also found throughout the Psalms where it is often used in the same way. In fact, the very first verse of the first Psalm introduced this theme saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way, it is the word path there in the Hebrew, of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, etc. So in this psalm, which is a wisdom psalm, the sons of Korah are eager to set us on the right path. Rich and poor together must take the right path. And one way that we can be helped in this is to contemplate the grave. As I have said, this is a wisdom psalm. And here the psalmist is highlighting the folly of this way of life. It is foolish for the wealthy and powerful to set their hope on riches. It is very foolish for them to use their power to oppress the weak. But it is wise for rich and poor alike to remember the grave and to live accordingly. But the grave is not the only thing we must consider. The rich and poor, strong and weak, 
oppressor and oppressed, must also remember Sheol. If we are to live according to wisdom and without fear, not only must we contemplate the grave, but also Sheol. In verse 14 we read, Like sheep, they, that is the wicked who have trusted in their power and wealth, are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. Now, this is a very ominous verse. But it expresses truths that are very important for us to consider. Notice that the rich and powerful oppressors are said to be like sheep. And this is quite the contrast to what they appear to be in the eyes of the oppressed. To the oppressed, they appear to be like strong lions, but in death they will be like sheep appointed for Sheol. So what is Sheol? Or in the Greek language, Hades. Well, it is not the grave. We have already contemplated the grave. Sheol, or Hades, is something different. The grave is where the body of man goes after death, but Sheol receives the soul. Sheol is the place where the soul of the dead live. They do not live there bodily, but their souls reside there. Prior to the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the souls of the righteous and the unrighteous went to Sheol after death, and there they lived. Pay careful attention here. The souls of the wicked were tormented there, whereas the souls of those made right through faith in the promised Messiah were comforted there. And so Sheol was divided into two parts, and a great chasm separated the two parts. Within Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, there was hell and there was also paradise. And this is precisely what Jesus described in that story about the rich man and Lazarus, which we read from in Luke 16, 19-31. The unrighteous rich man was tormented in Hades, or Sheol, whereas Lazarus was comforted there at Abraham's side, sometimes called Abraham's bosom, for Lazarus had the faith of Abraham. Now, something did change in Sheol or Hades at the time of Christ's resurrection from the dead. The souls of the unrighteous who pass from this world do still go to Sheol and are tormented there. But the souls of the righteous who have faith in Christ and are cleansed by His blood go not to Sheol or to Abraham's bosom or to Hades, whichever term you prefer, to be comforted there as in former times, but into the blessed presence of God in the heavenly realm. Why the change, you ask? The answer is, because Christ has won the victory. He is the living one. He died, and behold, He is alive forevermore, and He has the keys of death and Hades, death and Sheol. That is Revelation 1, 18. Therefore the Scriptures say, when He, Christ, ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Who were these captives that He led upon His ascension, except those who, prior to His resurrection, were there in Sheol, paradise, Abraham's bosom. These were the saints of old who had trusted in Him 
prior to his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And he ascended on high, leading a host of captives. And he also gave gifts to men. When we read the Psalms, we must remember that they were all written prior to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Therefore, what is said regarding the wicked in Sheol is still true, and it will remain true until the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment when those not in Christ but in their sins will be cast finally into the lake of fire. But what is said regarding the righteous in Sheol, though it was true then, it is not true now. For Christ has risen, and He has set those once held captive free. And this is why in the book of Revelation we see the souls of the righteous worshiping God. And where are they, brothers and sisters? Where are they presently? They are not in Abraham's bosom. They are not in Sheol or Hades, but in heaven. And so it is true then, for all who have faith in Christ after His resurrection, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in the heavenly realm. That is 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And so, let us go back to our text. What is the destiny of the wicked at the time of death? Their bodies go into the grave, and like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. And then we read, Death shall be their shepherd. Here, death is eerily personified as a shepherd. The unrighteous in Sheol are alive in the soul, but death governs them. They live in a continual state of death, and they await eternal condemnation. Again, we are to recognize the contrast. While alive on earth, these rich and powerful oppressors appear to live life to the fullest, But in death their bodies will go to the grave and their souls will go to Sheol where they will be shepherded by death and covered in eternal darkness. Furthermore, we read that the upright shall rule over them in the morning. The morning here may refer to the final judgment Or the morning may refer to the change that occurs when we pass from this life to the next. I think I prefer the second of these two options. But the imagery is very powerful either way. When we pass from this world, and especially at the final judgment, a great change will occur. From the vantage point of the wicked oppressors who trust in their riches, they will at the moment of death move from light in this world to the darkness of death. That is, from earthly day to eternal night. But for the oppressed who have taken refuge in the Lord and in His Messiah, at death they will be transferred from the dark night of suffering here on earth to the dawning of the eternal day in the comfort of God. And this is why the text says, The upright shall rule over them in the morning. The just and the unjust must always keep this in mind. At the time of death, and especially at the final judgment, there will be the dawning of a new day. For the righteous, that is, for those who have taken refuge in God and in His Christ, it will seem like morning. The sun will rise upon them, bringing eternal light and comfort. But to the wicked, this new day will seem like nightfall. The sun will set on them never to rise again. Whatever graces of God they enjoyed in this life, They will melt away and never return. Again, 
Note the contrast in our text. Note the reversal of the fortunes, as it were, of the faithful and of the oppressed and the faithless oppressor. As the oppressor moves from day to night, the oppressed who are in Christ will move from darkness and suffering to the dawning of the day as they pass from this world. Concerning the faithless and wicked oppressor, the text goes on to say, Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. It's a very interesting expression, and it's one that's a bit hard to translate. I do believe that the context, though, makes clear what is meant. The the verse seems to correspond to verse 12, which said, Man in his pomp or splendor will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And that, I believe, is what the word form refers, refers to here in verse 14. In Sheol, the external and fleshly pomp and splendor of the wealthy and powerful will be consumed. Their form will melt away, for as the remainder of verse 14 teaches, in Sheol there is no place for the form or external splendor of the dead to dwell. Think of it, in this world, those who are dead in their sins, those who are wicked and those who oppress, inwardly they are dead, but externally they seem so splendid. You know, there they are in their power and in their wealth. But in Sheol, all of that splendor, all of that external beauty, it will melt away. There's no place for it in Sheol, for there the soul resides, and there the wicked will be only tormented. Again, the contrast is very startling. The reversal of things is very great. And in verse 15 we find one more statement about Sheol. And it is in this statement that true comfort is delivered to the people of God. Up to this point we have contemplated what will become of the wicked in Sheol. And yes, we have been told that in Sheol the upright would rule over the wicked. So there was a bit of of hope there. But true comfort is found in these words. Listen carefully to them. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me, Selah. What a marvelous expression this is. We see here that the sons of Korah and many others under the Old Covenant, they had great faith, they had great hope that that God would, would bring victory to them, God would bring deliverance to them, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, He will Receive me, say law. Those two words, but God, are very refreshing, are they not? They grab our attention because they are words of hope. This psalm is rather dark. It is ominous as it contemplates the grave and Sheol. But the words, but God, signal that in God there is hope for man. There is hope for man, body and soul. The words, But God, in verse 15, remind me of what Paul said in Ephesians 2. Speaking to Christians, speaking to Christians, he, he wrote, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying about the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Also, a very dark and disturbing text as we consider what we once were before coming to faith in Christ. But then we find these two words. But God. But God. 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I cannot help but think that perhaps Paul had Psalm 49 in mind as he wrote this text. If it was not explicitly in his mind, it had so influenced him that he knew this to be true. But God, it is, it is, that, it is that that makes the difference. There we find hope. The words, but God, are the hinge on which this passage turns from bad news to good. And so it is with Psalm 49. The words, but God, signal that good news is coming. There is true hope and comfort found in God. Listen again to the hope of the psalmist. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Selah. Think about that word, ransom, for a moment. Previously it was said that no man, no matter how rich, could possibly ransom another or give to God the price of his life. We are indebted to God, brothers and sisters. We stand guilty before Him. A price must be paid for our sin, and the wages of sin is death. No sum of money will do. But here the psalmist says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. God Himself must pay the ransom. The psalmist knew this. And notice the faith of the psalmist. He knew for certain that God would. God will ransom my soul, he says. And we know that He has done this very thing through Jesus the Christ in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Christ has ransomed His people, body and soul. He has paid the price for their sins. As Matthew says, the Son of Man came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He has ransomed those given to Him by the Father. He has rescued His people from Sheol. And He will raise their bodies from the grave at the end of time to bring them healthy and whole into the new creation and into the blessed presence of God forever and ever. For He will receive me, the psalmist says. He knew that his soul would be ransomed from Sheol, but he also had this confidence that he, body and soul, would be received by God in the end. His hope was placed squarely in God and in God's Messiah. God will redeem me, and God will receive me. That was his hope, and it is our hope too. And so finally we have come to the answer to the question, why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear in times of trouble? And the answer is that in Christ we should not. Never should we fear. We should never fear, even when the strong and powerful oppress us to the point of death. For in Christ God has ransomed us, body and soul, and through faith in Christ, He will receive us for all eternity. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.6 In light of these truths, the answer is man cannot do anything to us. For we belong to God, body and soul. He has ransomed us. He has redeemed us. I think to some, this may seem like a very strange way to answer the question, why should I fear in times of trouble? 
I think many Christians today will not dare answer the question in this way, that is, by contemplating the grave and contemplating Sheol and Christ's victory over it. Instead, instead, many would prefer to say, Fear not, for God will certainly protect you in this life. Fear not, for God will surely bless you. God will surely heal you. He will surely preserve you in this life and keep you from all evil. He will keep you from all suffering. I think this is the way that many Christians talk in our day. The problem is that it is neither true biblically, nor is it true in reality, brothers and sisters. Persecution is real. Sometimes God's people do suffer at the hand of powerful persecutors. Martyrdom is real, friends. If you need proof, consider Christ and His apostles, not to mention the whole course of the history of the church. And so these unbiblical, naive, and shallow answers to the question, why should I fear, they really will not do in the end. They will not stand up to the realities of life. They will not bring real comfort in the face of the real trials and tribulations of this life. But what will bring real comfort? It is the good news that Christ has won the victory over death, the grave, and Sheol. Christ has won the victory. Indeed, all who are found in Him will live in the blessed presence of God forever and ever. This is a real comfort. And this must be our decided belief and conviction if we hope to stand in the evil day. You know, we teach our children the Baptist Catechism, and I'm glad that we do. But there is another very good catechism that you should probably be aware of. It is called the the Orthodox Catechism. It's the Baptist version of another very famous and beloved catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. And I would like to, to read for you the very first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, or the Orthodox Catechism. Uh, This is also something that we must teach our children, I think, at least this principle. They're hearing it now, but this catechism question and answer is very helpful. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What a way to start a catechism, you know? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And I want you to listen carefully to the answer that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, All things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And I have here this remark that pretty much sums it all up, doesn't it? I think that is the message of this psalm. This is to be our comfort in life and in death. We are not our own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us now very briefly consider the resolution or solution to the question that was raised in verses 5-6. through I don't have to add much. 
to the reading of these verses, for they do nicely summarize the observations that have already been made. Why should we fear when the powerful and wealthy rise up to oppress us? Answer, we should not. Fear not, brothers and sisters, for God has redeemed you. God has ransomed you and will keep you in Christ, but the wicked will surely perish. Verse 16, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praised when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And so here is wisdom for the rich and poor, for the powerful and the weak alike. May we all live our lives with the grave and with Sheol in mind. And may we be sure to run to God and to His Messiah for refuge. For He has paid our ransom. Through faith in Him we find the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of life everlasting and the blessed presence of God. Amen. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we consider those who have gone before us, And as we think of those who have suffered greatly for their faith in Christ and yet who have stood firm to the end. uh, Father, we thank You for their witness. We thank You for their example. Our prayer is that You would make us like them. Father, if we should be so blessed to live in a land where there is no persecution, may we still have this same conviction. May we still have this same comfort in life and death that we belong only to Christ and He will keep us body and soul. I pray that our Lack of persecution would not make us soft, Lord, but if persecution should come against us, strengthen us even now, prepare us so that we would stand firm. Father, I pray that you would truly help us to live with the life to come in mind. Father, that we would not love this world nor the things of this world, that we would not store up our treasures here, but that we would store up our treasures in heaven where you are. Father, strengthen our faith. Help us to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and to truly believe it. We pray for these things for our good. We pray for these things so that we might live to your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.